today. We have been going through the book of 1 John for six and a half months. This is lesson number 28 through the book of 1 John, and I thought we were going to take another two weeks to finish, but Lord willing, we will finish 1 John today. That's pretty special when we've been going through it for six and a half months. So if you've been with us, you understand the theme that we've titled this, For His Glory, For Our Benefit. The 1 John has really brought that out, this concept of how God glorifies himself by benefiting us. And how we glorify God by listening to his promises and listening to his word. And so I'm thankful for that relationship. I hope you are as well. And today we're going to finish 1 John chapter 5. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, the end of the passage. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We do have Bibles in the back bookshelf. If you need those Bibles, you can use them. You can take them home if you need to. The title of our lesson today is going to be called Hail to the Victor. And we're going to look at 1 John 5, verses 16 to 21. 1 John 5, verses 16 to 21. We'll get to the text here in a little bit, but do you like to win? Do you like to lose? No, we all like to win. Winning is fun, losing not so fun. We all want to be winners. Did you ever win something significant? Did you ever win a tournament, a prize, a spelling bee, anything? It's fun to win, isn't it? I'm going to give you 10 signs that you know you're a winner. Okay, five of these are going to pertain to all of us, and five of them are going to pertain just to me, because I'm a winner. But so are you. And here's ten ways you know that you're a winner. Number one way you know you're a winner is you live where everyone else goes on vacation. If you live here in the North Country, you're a winner, because everyone wants to be where you are. So that's a sign of a winner. Number two way you know you're a winner is the way you check the weather in the morning is you hike a mountain. What's that? <laughs> With skis. Nice. You don't have to check your weather app, right? Just go out on a mountain and see what it's like. Here's number three way you know you're a winner. Your slogan says, live free or die, and you're still alive. <laughs> That's pretty cool, right? That means you are alive and you are free. Number four way you know you're a winner is you wake up every day expecting to see a moose. <laughs> Today's the day. I wake up with expectation every day to see that moose. Number five way you know you're a winner is your friends are so jealous of where you live, they have stopped speaking to you because you have nothing in common anymore. I have some of those friends. It's very jealous. Here's number six way, and this kind of pertains to me, that you know you're a winner, is your pastor's appreciation day looked like a banquet for the Oscars. If you guys were here last, last Sunday, that's exactly what it looked like, and so thank you for that. You guys have treated my family with tremendous love. Here's number seven way you know you're a winner. You have gained seven pounds. Because literally everyone in your church is a gourmet chef. So thank you for the weight. I appreciate it. Here's number eight way you know you're a winner. Is your church still laughs at your icebreakers. Even, they know, even though they know exactly what is coming. So thank you church for continuing to laugh at these. How about this number nine. You know you're a winner when your worship band is so good. Your children's ministry is so amazing. Your church body is so cool that you're nervous. You're going to have to find seats for the whole North Country. And we are a little nervous here, so thank you for that. Number 10 way you know you're a winner is your wife still hasn't caught on to the fact that she's way out of your league. Don't tell her. And this is the one that's going to transition us to our lesson today. You know you're a winner when the Lord is the eternal victor. And you're on his team. Amen. Join me at 1 John chapter 5. Now along this journey, I've encouraged you to read 
the book of 1 John every week. Now, this has been t- lesson number 28 we're looking at today. Has anyone gone through the entire series reading it every week? Or as long as you've been here, that counts. That, yes, Bonnie. Okay, we have a few. Has anyone read it more often than not? All right, more hands are coming up. I've encouraged you to read through the book of 1 John. For those who did, you guys get a gold star. I don't know what that means, but thank you for doing that. It's a practice. I, I think, believe it's been very beneficial to read 1 John so many weeks in a row. It's been beneficial for my soul. But today we're going to look at just a handful of verses. 1 John 5, verses 16 to 21. Let's follow along as I read. John says this. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him, give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the word today. I've encouraged you along the way, and we've been doing this every week, is to consider the context of what John has been speaking about. And so I believe by reading the context and understanding the verses that come right before ours, is it benefits us. It supports what John is telling us today. So let's read the verses we looked at last week. From the lesson, never alone. It was verses 13 to 15. Last week we looked at these verses and John told us this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Those verses are going to support our verses today. Our three-point outline today that we want to look at is, number one, an important distinction. Number two, a powerful promise. And number three, a final exhortation. We're going to start here with an important distinction. You you know what a distinction is? When you have to sometimes clarify the difference between two things. Well, most of you know I have a large family uh, with eight kids. There's seven in one picture and one in the other picture. And uh, we have a lot of kids. And so we often have to make a distinction when people are are wondering why we have the size of our family, because some people think we're Amish. (laughs) Even though we don't really look Amish. Some people think we're Mennonite. Uh, Others say we're Catholic. And we also say people tell us we're Mormon. So we have to let them know we're neither of those. We're just Jesus-loving, non-denominational Christians who have a big family. And so we have to make that distinction sometimes, letting them know that. Because apparently it's very strange to have a big family in this day and, day and age. Here's another picture. Do you guys think that's beautiful? Is that a beautiful picture? Look at the mountains behind that. I think that's beautiful. Anytime there's mountains in a town, I think that's beautiful. Do you recognize that picture? Does anyone recognize that picture? No, it's not Utah. It's Littleton. That's Littleton. Anyone confused? Littleton, Colorado. <laughs> This is Littleton, Colorado, the rival Littleton. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, sometimes it's important to make a distinction. When we found out we were being hired to be the pastor of Crossroads Church here in Littleton, New Hampshire, one of the challenges we found out is it was going to be housing. 
housing was going to be challenged here in the North Corinthian to find a house for a family, nevertheless, a family of our size. So we began doing what normal people do, going on the internet, seeing where the houses might be, and we weren't having a lot of luck, at least on our end. But thankfully, and I have to embarrass her just a little bit, but I love this woman. My mother called me and she said, Todd, I found a couple beauties, a couple wonderful houses for your family. She goes, I don't know what the church is looking at because there's houses everywhere. And <laughs> she sent me a couple houses to look at it. I'm like, man, that is a nice house. And so I decided to call the realtor of this house and say, hey, we're interested. We, our family is moving up to Littleton and we're interested in the house. And he goes, so where are you coming from? I said, we're coming from Scranton, Pennsylvania. He goes, whoa, basically across the country there. And I'm like, just a few states away. I'm, I'm very confused at this point. So we start talking about the house and the area and I, it just seemed off. And I said, do you mind, just mind telling me where, where this house is? And he goes, it's in Littleton, Colorado. And I said, well, I don't think this house is going to work for our family because I'm pastoring in Littleton, New Hampshire, and that's going to be a long commute. So we had to say no to that house in Littleton, Colorado, even though it was a nice house. But sometimes it's important to make a distinction, right? Sometimes you have to make a distinction. Well, John is going to make a distinction for us today, and it's, it's a very important distinction. And it's one we can't linger at too long, but it's one I do want to speak about because John brings this up. He says this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Is anyone a little bit confused? Because I was when I looked at that. Sometimes you come to a passage of Scripture and... You're not entirely sure what is meant. And sometimes that happens. The word of God is complex and our minds are small. It's just going to happen from time to time. There's going to be something that is challenging for our minds. And what's interesting about 1 John is that it's been such a straight shooting book. Hitting us right between the eyes. Been very blunt, very clear. Almost made for children and simpletons. But you come to this passage in 1 John chapter 5 and it's more challenging. Maybe the most challenging passage in the entire book. And before, when I come to a passage like this, when I have questions, this is what I do, and I, I think this is a good thing to do, is write down your questions. Write them down. When you're studying the Word of God and you have questions and things aren't clear to you, write those questions down. Take those questions to the Lord. Pray about them. And say, Lord, I'm struggling here. Help me understand. And He will, by His Holy Spirit, shed light upon those questions. If you need more clarity, that's when you start to ask your pastor or maybe reach for a commentary, someone like Matthew Henry, and, and start to shed a little bit more light on these kinds of questions. But these are the questions that I have when I came to this passage, and I just want to work through these a little bit. Number one is, what are sins that do not lead to death? That's the first question I have. Number two is, why should we pray for those committing such a sin? Number three, what are the sins that do lead to death? And number four, why should we not pray for those committing the deadliest sins? Those are the questions that I have, and I want to explore those before we move on. Let's start here with number one. What are the sins that do not lead to death? Notice again, he says, if anyone sees his brother. Now, we need to notice something here. He's been talking to a Christian audience this entire time, and he still is talking to a Christian audience. So when he says, if anyone sees his brother, he's talking about a Christian noticing another Christian. Okay, we're not dealing with unbelievers here. We're not dealing with the world. Okay, we're dealing with two Christians. One is noticing another Christian committing a sin. And notice that it says he sees 
his brother and not its hearsay or a third party or someone gossiped about his brother. He sees his brother committing a sin, and then he says this, not leading to death. A sin that does not lead to death. He says he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Then he goes on to say there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Well, John, what are you talking about? Notice he doesn't really clarify. He doesn't really give a list of sins that don't lead to death. He just leaves us a little bit wondering. Well, sometimes you have to be careful in this world, don't you? Because there's traps. In fact, if any of you have little creatures and critters running around your house, like we do right now in our house, uh, we've had to set a couple of these mouse traps. And because we have mice in our attic, and we've had to be very careful because these traps are spring-loaded, and uh, sometimes if you're not careful, they can, they can get you, right? They can nip you. And uh, that, would be, that would be sad to be hit by a, a mouse trap. But sometimes that happens, and sometimes there's spiritual traps in this world. Sometimes they're of great proportions. Sometimes they're not so big. But either way, they're dangerous. Either way, they can harm us. Well, all sin is dangerous, isn't it? All sin is dangerous. All sin is something we should watch out for. All sin. And I don't think John is lessening sin. I think he's just making a distinction between one sin and the other. Here's how I would answer the question, what is he talking about? What are sins that do not lead to death? Well, we're going to use 1 John to answer the question about 1 John. I think that's always a safe thing to do when you're reading the Word of God, is let the Word of God answer the Word of God. And when it, when it can happen in the same book, that's really an ideal thing, when you can just turn back a few pages and find something like this, where John said in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My answer to the question, what are sins that do not lead, lead to death, are sins that can be confessed. Sins that can find repentance and forgiveness and be cleansed from our soul. Because John has already handled this topic as if to say as a promise, if and when we confess, we will find restoration. We will find cleansing from God. Sins that do not lead to death, therefore, must be sins that we can recognize as sin. Number two, it must be sins that we can confess to, we can own up to. It must be sins that we can turn away from, and it must be sins that we can find forgiveness from. Because if there's sins that don't lead to death, they lead to restoration. They lead to cleansing, they lead to healing. And John has covered this topic already, so he's telling us today that there are sins that do not lead to death. And the sins in that category, although he doesn't give us a list of what those sins are, are sins that can be owned up to turned away from and found forgiveness for. And I think that's a helpful distinction. Because I, I would say as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we do sin, don't we? We do. Myself included. Maybe that's hard to hear about your pastor, but your pastor is a sinner. Your pastor does not live the perfect, holy, righteous lifestyle. I often have to say to the Lord, Lord, I messed up. Lord, I didn't do what was holy and righteous and loving, and I have to own up to it, and I have to ask for his forgiveness. And those, sin, those are the sins that do not lead to death because God restores me. God forgives me. God picks me up and sends me on my way towards life. So when John says there are sins that do not lead to death, he's talking about anything that falls into that category. Now, maybe that's a little too vague. Maybe that's a little too generic. Maybe you want a list of sins that are possibly palatable. But here's why John wouldn't do that. Think about that logically. Why would John not give us a list of sins that don't lead to death? What would we do? 
Or what would be the temptation for us to do? Toe the line, wouldn't we? We'd play around with those sins because those sins would not be deadly in our estimation. So instead of John getting us near the ledge without falling over the ledge, he's telling us stay over here. Stay completely away from the ledge. Because if you dance around the ledge too long, you might fall into a sin that does lead to death and possibly go over the, over the line. So we're going to talk about that here in a little bit too. But remember what 1 John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. So that we don't sin, so that we don't do what we used to do that hurts God. But he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a helper. We have someone who can help us if we sin, when we sin, and we confess that we have a helper. And he himself is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We want, he wants us to know that if we sin, there still can be hope for us. There still can be cleansing for us. But John doesn't want to make a distinction between sins that aren't deadly and sins that are deadly. Here's the question, too, before we get to the other one. Is why should we pray for those who commit sins that do not lead to death? Why should we pray for those? Look at it again. Well, here's basically a distinction that John is making as well. This is often sometimes a problem in many churches is that sometimes instead of praying, we tell somebody else instead of God. And it's a deadly thing called gossip, and it hurts a lot of churches. A lot of churches can fall into this. A lot of Christians can fall into this. I myself have fallen into this from time to time. Is that instead of taking something that is harmful to God and asking for his help and for restoration, I decide to spread that sin to somebody else. Maybe to make myself feel better. Maybe so the comparison game, I look a little better than my brother. I don't know what, why we gossip, but sometimes we do gossip. And that's, that's a sin. And that's not what John tells us to do. He does not tell us to tell other brothers. In fact, Helen, it was good that you flagged me down and reminded me about the intercessory prayer group on Monday because it's such a great lead-in for what John is talking about. Intercessory prayer is when we take the needs of those we love and we offer them up to God, asking for God's help. Well, sin would fall into that category. Sin of a Christian, sin of a brother or sister that you have seen would fall into the category of something we should pray for. Not something we should tell our neighbor about and gossip and spread that rumor on and on and on, but something we should take to the Lord and he said, if you do, God will give him life. If you see your brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Do we do that? And I'm including myself in that question. Do we do that? When we notice things that are in error, things that are dangerous, things that are slips and falls in our brothers and sisters in Christ, what is our first instinct? To feel better about ourselves that we didn't fall into the hole? To tell someone else so that we look better by comparison? Or to say to the Lord, Lord, help them. Help my brother, help my sister who's struggling. Something that I noticed that is contrary. And the promise John gave us is that he will give him life. In James, the book of James, we find another promise. James 5.16, many of you are familiar with this verse. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and notice it, pray for each other that you may be healed, that you may be restored, that you may get back on the Christian path and continue your journey. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. One of the best ways to love your church, to love your Christian brothers and sisters, is to pray. To lift them up to the Lord and say, Lord, help them. 
Help them in their struggles. Help them in their weaknesses. Help them in their failings so that they can be healed. Because that should be the goal for every single one of us is healing, restoration, and progress in the Christian life. When we are okay with our Christian brothers and sisters falling into a ditch and staying in a ditch, now we have a problem with sin. So John and James remind us that if we confess our sins, we can find forgiveness and restoration, and that's a good practice. Now again, I told you we can't linger here too long, but I do want to answer this question because John brings this up, and he kind of mentions it as a little bit of a footnote, but it is there in 1 John chapter 5, so I don't want to gloss over this question. What are the sins that do lead to death, John? Because you notice it. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Then we have a little bit of an asterisk. And he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. That's curious, isn't it? It's curious in two ways. Number one, there are sins that lead to death. And number two, we shouldn't pray for those who are committing sins that lead to death. At least that's what it sounds like. Now, there's a difference and a distinction between a, a trap that can hurt you and something that can kill you, right? And that's, that's a big distinction. Putting your hand in a mousetrap, bad. That's a bad day. That's a bad feeling. But taking poison, of course, would be much, much worse because that could end your life. And there's a distinction between something that could harm you and you can get better and something that can kill you. Well, this also isn't new to the Scripture. The Scripture handles these topics pretty clearly. In Galatians chapter 5, we find Paul handling this head on. He's handling this topic with the church in Galatia head on. Sins that do lead to death. And I want to be very careful with my language here because I don't want us to erode other Christian doctrines by talking about something that is important. So we have to keep these a little bit in tension. But John is, or excuse me, Paul in Galatians chapter 5 is writing to a church. And he says this to the church. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, are clear, are obvious. And notice the sins that he gives us. Now he does give us a list, a list of sins that do lead to death. Number one, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These, right here, are lifestyle sins. John is, or Paul is making a distinction between sins that we sin and we get up, we confess, we repent, we turn away from, we find forgiveness, we get back on the course, versus sins that are lifestyle sins, sins that we commit over and over and over. He says in, verse, in Galatians, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 21, I warn you, as I warned you before, notice the language, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sins that lead to death. Now, notice he's not talking about physical death there. He's not talking about your life will be shortened by making a dumb mistake. My dad used to say this. You play dumb games, finish it. You win dumb prizes. There's the dad back there. <laughs> you play dumb games, you win dumb prizes. Basically, if you do something stupid, you should deserve a stupid reward. Well, that's kind of what Paul is saying, but he's saying this on a much more grand level, basically saying if you live in these sins, 
you should expect to not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how do we wrap our minds around that? Well, basically, Paul is telling us what John has already told us in 1 John chapter 3. And now I want you to notice the language, because this language is very important to what John is telling us. Very important. He said in 1 John 3, a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, everyone, notice it, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Notice the phrasing again. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do you notice the distinction? Who is John talking about? Non-believers. People that belong to the devil. Those who practice sin belong to the one who is sin, which is the devil. Those who continue to practice sin should be very clear in their minds that they could not be following Jesus Christ because those are opposite pathways. One is sanctification and becoming more like Jesus Christ, and one is completely contrary to all things that are holy, the practice of sin. And this is what I believe John is bringing up in 1 John chapter 5 when he says there are sins that lead to death. There are sin and sinful lifestyles that, of course, will be condemned. And this is anyone who practices sin, who makes it a routine or a habit to sin. The word routine, I decided to look this up because I thought this was a good word for what John is bringing up. The word routine is defined as a round of business, amusement, or pleasure. Notice it, daily or frequently pursued. Especially a course of business or official duties regularly or frequently returning. Do you notice the distinction? between a slip and a fall and to get back up and go on your journey and something that is not only regular but regularly pursued. John is saying that's a distinction. That's a distinction between someone who's following Christ and someone who's not following Christ. So why is John bringing this up? Because he wants us to understand that there's a distinction between someone who is a Christian who has sinned versus someone who is living in sin, practicing sin as a routine of their life. That person needs Christ as their Savior for the first time. They need to recognize the gospel. They need to understand they're a sinner. And they need to trust in him for salvation. A Christian who sins also needs restoration. But they need the restoration as in a child coming to their father or their mother saying, I've screwed up. I've messed up and I need your help and I need you to restore me. And I think that's an important distinction. Here's another question that John gives us, that gave me at least as I read this, is why should we not pray for those committing the deadliest sins? I mean, if there's sins that do not lead to death, and there's sins that do lead to death, I mean, I'm a logical guy, I like to think logically, so if I saw a category of sin that was harmful and a category of sin that was deadly, I would focus most of my attention on the deadly, right? I would focus on the bigger sins, the ones that do lead to death, and John's going, well... If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
Is John actually telling us not to pray for those who are in lifestyle sins, those who need the gospel? And I would say, no, I don't think he's saying that. I think my, what he's talking about, if I could sort of paraphrase John's word, is John would probably be saying something like, that's not what I'm referring to right now. I am talking to a Christian audience about a Christian problem, about one Christian seeing another Christian committing a sin. That kind of prayer to the Lord is different than praying for an unbelieving neighbor or co-worker or family member who is living an ungodly, carnal lifestyle and who needs the gospel. That person should also be prayed for, shouldn't they? Absolutely, 100%. And I do, and I hope that you do as well. I don't think John is saying, don't pray for the unbelievers. Don't pray for those who are away from Christ. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is we're specifically talking about one specific issue when a Christian sins and we notice it. What do we do with that? And in 1 John 3, he's reminded us of this beautiful, beautiful doctrine. The reason the Son of God appeared, notice it, was to destroy the works of the devil. I love that verse. I hope you love that verse. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The sin that the sin that is plaguing this whole world, that was plaguing my soul and your soul before we trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son came and appeared to this earth to destroy that pattern in my lifestyle so that I could follow God and righteousness and love. And I'm going to paraphrase it by saying it this way, and I'm going to use my testimony as an example of this. If there is no victory over sin, then you are not with a victor. If you do not find yourself winning against sinful patterns, then we should question whether we're with the victor, because the victor came to destroy the works of the devil. And let me sort of insert my own testimony. At age 26, that was me. Claiming to be a Christian, going to church regularly, reading my Bible occasionally, but living and practicing sin. And basically telling myself, I'll always be this way. God, you're going to have to accept me as I am. You're going to have to do something with me as I am because I can't get victory over these certain sins that are in my life. And long story short, the Lord basically said to me, Todd, you don't know who I am then. I came to get victory over sins. I came to destroy the works of the devil. And your sins are not too big for the Savior. The Savior is bigger than all sins. The grace of God is bigger than all sins. Every single sin can be victored over. Do you believe that? Every sin. Every sin, no matter how big, how long we've committed it, can be conquered. Not by our strength, but by the strength of the victor. So John makes a distinction by saying there are sins that lead to death. Those who don't trust in Jesus Christ, those who aren't on the side of the victor, of course those sins lead to death because they're not with the victor. But there are sins that do lead to death in the Christian life, and we need to pray for those who are struggling with such sins so that they can be restored and get back on the path. And I think that's the distinction John is making to the church so that he knows we're all in this together. We're all on the side of the victor together. And we can all find victory over our sins, and we can do so together. And I found that victory at age 26. And I stood up and did something similar to what John, Jesus' father, do you remember Jesus' father Joseph was once visited by an angel when, he was about, when Mary was about to give birth 
to Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord came to Joseph, his father, and said, You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people, notice it, from their sins. Not just the consequence of their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Man, when I started to realize that as a young 20-something man, it changed my whole outlook on the Christian life, going, I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from the practice of sin, the pattern in my life and my soul, if I believe that Jesus Christ has been broken and been restored. And I, I like to assume, and I, I don't think this is an assumption, I believe the, my, my mom and many others in that life, in my life at that time, were praying for me. In fact, I know she was. I know they were. And that prayer was heard by our Lord. And that Lord sent his scripture and his Holy Spirit to my soul to say, Todd, wake up. I'm the victor. I'm the savior. I came to destroy the works of the devil. You don't have to live in the grave any longer, Todd. That's an important distinction, and we should have spent more time on that, but we have to move, we have to move forward because John has two more points of the victor to talk about today. Number, number two is a powerful promise. Now, you guys ever seen pictures similar to this? This is what's called forced perspective. Anyone ever heard of that? Anyone a photographer and never used forced perspective? Does anyone actually think the guy is blowing people off his hand? <laughs> Does anyone actually think a giant foot is about to crush two, two adult people? No. Hopefully we all understand there's an amusement with that picture. The, the picture is forcing the perspective so that we see the foot bigger than it is and we see the person, the guy, bigger than he actually is. The reason I bring this up is because this is the devil's game, isn't it? He loves to force perspective upon us by making things look grimmer than they are, darker than they are, scarier than they are, when in all reality, he's not that strong, not when compared to the victor. Do you believe that? We sing a song called Jesus is King, Satan is vanquished, and Jesus is King. And I believe that. I believe Satan has been vanquished, and that when he lies to us, he's not telling us the truth. Now, I don't know, you guys have heard the phrase, is chivalry dead? Chivalry might be dead in our culture, but this used to be a thing in many modern movies. You know, the knight in shining armor saving to save the princess and being the great protector in the time of need. That used to be a great story that we love to tell and it showed up in many movies and many stories. And we all love to know that there's a protector, don't we? We all love to know that if something bad happens in our life, there's going to be somebody there to help us, to take care of us, to watch over us. I want to know that. I'm weak. I'm a pretty weak guy. I want to know that if something bad comes into my life, there's going to be a protector. Thankfully, we have that reminder today from 1 John 5.18. Now, listen to it again. He reiterates what he told us before. We know that everyone who has been born of God, now there's a test for us, does not keep on sinning. Not the way they did before. Not the same patterns they did before. They do not live in the same practices they did once they trusted Jesus Christ. They repent. They turn around, they start living new with brand new power and brand new delights and brand new desires. But he says, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Born of God, born of God. He's talking about Christians. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Even that's a little bit of a confusing phrase. I decided to use another 
version to help us understand maybe what John is telling us there. This is what the New King James says about 1 John 5.18. I think it's a little bit better phrasing. At least it helped me understand it a little bit better. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. John says, does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. Do you notice what he's saying? Those who have been born of God have been given power. Those who have been born of God have been given new life. Those who have been born of God have been given the Holy Spirit. Those who have been born of God are given illumination of the Holy Scriptures. Those who have been born of God have been given divine tools in order to stand up to the devil so that the devil does not have ownership over us anymore. Now, you could look at that verse and go, wow, that sounds a little self-glorifying. Those who have been born of God keeps himself. Like, isn't Jesus the one who keeps us? Yes. John's already gone over that. But I think what he's also telling us today is we've been given the power from Jesus in our life, in our soul, to stand up to sin. We don't have to belong to the same sinful patterns we once were. We can stand up to the devil. This is a song we also sing here at Crossroads, isn't it? He called my name and I ran out of that grave. Who is the Savior? Jesus is the Savior. Who is the author of life? Jesus is the author of life. There is no way that you and I ran out of our grave on our own, is there? No way. Not a chance. Not a chance that at age 25, 26, I, I said to the devil, I'm done with you. I'm going to live my own life. Thank you. You don't own me any longer. There's no way that I said that on my own. But when Jesus called me, he said, Todd, come out of that grave. Just like he said to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. You're not a dead man anymore, Lazarus. You don't have to live in the tomb anymore, Lazarus. Come out of your grave, Lazarus. Don't let the devil bully you any longer. You don't live in that sinful tomb like you once did. I, Jesus Christ, have saved you. It's a beautiful promise. So John says, we know that we are from God because we have come out of our grave. Because we can stand up to the devil. Because we can break the sinful patterns in our life by God's grace by God's strength for God's glory. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's another distinction. That's what makes Christians not so fun people for the world. We have power they don't have. We have victory they haven't yet tasted of. We have hope that they don't yet know. We are born of God, and therefore we have things that are from God. And the whole world that we live in, that we function in, that we go to work with, we have neighbors in this camp, lie under the power of the evil one. And that's a sad reality, isn't it? That's a sad reality that Satan still has grip on many souls in this earth. But that can change today, thankfully. What's great about the Lord, though, is that when he sees... His people being messed with. He stands up for them. Now, you guys are from the North Country, which means you guys are brave, tough, experienced with nature. But let me ask you a very simple question. If you saw this scene of a grizzly bear with her two cubs, would you go and mess with those cubs? No. Would you play pranks on them? No. Would you run and make faces at them? Would you shoot them with a water gun? That's silly, right? That, that'd be, I mean, I, my children are underdeveloped minds. My children know better than that. To mess with a mama bear and her cubs. Why? Because what's the mama bear going to do? Stand up for her cubs. 
Do you think a mama bear is any more protective than the Lord is over his people? Not a chance. When the Lord sees his people being messed with, he stands up for us because we belong to him, because we are his children. We don't lie any longer in the power of the evil one. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, a passage we looked at this last Wednesday, says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? The valley of the shadow of death. The psalmist David says, I fear no evil for you, Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I can walk through that valley. I can live in that valley. I can be in that valley for a time. But I will fear no evil because the Lord is with me. Is the Lord with you? Are you with the Lord? Do you have that comfort? Do you have that peace? Do you have that hope that no matter what happens, your protector is there and the devil cannot touch you? I think two of the greatest passages, greatest stories in Scripture are Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace. I love sharing those stories with my children. I love reading those accounts, don't you? Because it's so opposite of what you expect. Daniel living righteously before his God, and the bad guys don't like that. They're trying to find dirt on Daniel. They can't find any, so they make up a law that they knew Daniel couldn't abide by, and Daniel broke it because he was always going to pray to his God, even no matter what the law said. Well, they threw him in the lion's den. And that's, that was the end for Daniel, right? Daniel was torn to pieces, and it's a sad story. No, of course, that's not how the story goes. What did the angel of the Lord do? Shut the lion's mouths. You're not going to hurt Daniel. Daniel is mine. Daniel belongs to me. I will protect him, even in the worst situations. He came out of that den, and without one scrape, without one scratch, and everyone glorified God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down to evil King Nebuchadnezzar and his golden statue and be idolaters like everyone else. And they said, no, we won't. They said, you better do it. We're going to throw you in the fire furnace. And they said, well, it doesn't matter. We're not going to, no matter what you do, King Nebuchadnezzar. Even if we die, we still won't do it. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't bluffing, was he? He took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and tossed them into the fiery furnace after making it seven times hotter than it originally was. And again, that's how their lives ended that day. No, of course not. You guys know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, and King Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, and what did he see? A fourth man that looked like the Son of Man. Even King Nebuchadnezzar said that. They brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Their eyebrows weren't singed. It's almost as if they were never in the furnace. They were in the furnace, but the Lord protected them from the furnace. Well, if he could protect Daniel from the lions, if he can protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, can he protect the Christian from the devil? Do you know the devil wants us dead? Not even harmed. Dead. And I don't mean the physical death. I mean he wants us in hell with him forever. And if he had his druthers, we'd be there right now. Why aren't we? The Lord forbade it. It will not happen. Not on his watch. Before we close today, let's look at a final exhortation. 
guys remember your dad? I, I already gave you one of these dad sayings. My dad had a bunch of sayings growing up. Maybe your dad did as well. Look at some of those sayings. Can you notice those? Did your dad ever say some of these things? When I was your age, oops, just lost it. When I was your age, dot, 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 a little bit of dirt never hurt anybody. Go ask your mother. That's a lovely one. I love using that one. Uh, were you raised in a barn? What does that mean exactly? Were you raised in a barn? Don't you know what hard work is? Number five, it builds character. Number four, don't make me stop this car. The vain threat. You're not sure exactly what was going to happen, but you, you, stopped, you stopped disobeying. Number three, you're grounded till you're 30. I think I actually was. I didn't leave the house till I was 28. That one actually happened to me. Uh, number two, money doesn't grow on trees. And number one, oh, the classic, because I said so. You don't need a reason. Dad said so. John's going to give us, John has been treating his readers like, like children. He's been, and, and I mean that in a good way. He's been treating them like a loving father watching out for his children. Because I believe John had had a long tenured relationship with the readers of 1 John. And I believe John could say what they needed to hear for their own benefit. So John has been shooting straight right between the eyes most often in the book of 1 John. Well, the final exhortation he says in verse 20 is this, and we know that the Son of God has come to the earth. Jesus has come to this earth and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And even better than that, John says, we are in him who is true. There's one thing to know the Lord. There's another thing to be in the Lord. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Jesus, when he was on the earth, spoke this saying in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see the understanding that God gives? It's the difference between light and darkness. In the darkness, you can't see anything. You're wandering around. You're groping about. You're not sure what to do, where to go. You, you can hurt yourself, harm yourself. But when the light is turned on, you can see clearly. You can walk clearly. You can navigate without getting hurt. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. When I come, the whole world gets light. And when the whole world gets light, they can see for the first time what is right and what is wrong. And we have that understanding. John, in 1 John chapter 5, a passage we looked at just last week, or two weeks ago, excuse me, says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Another distinction. And it all comes down to who has the Son. That's what Christianity boils down to. If Christianity can boil down to one single fact, it's do you have Jesus? Are you in Jesus? If you have Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you are secure. You are holy. You are cleansed. You have hope beyond the grave. If you don't have the Son of God, you have none of it. Because that's what Jesus offers to this world. Everything that we need. And that's a beautiful reminder for all of us today. So John says, and we, have know, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Not third party, but firsthand. Intimately. We can know the one who is true. We can talk to him who is true. We can see his protection, see his love. But we can also be in him who is true. When the storm comes, and it will, and it does, and maybe it even is right now in your life. The storm is there right now. Why are you still safe? 
because you're in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Proverbs 18 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. When there's scary things around us, when the storm is swirling around us, we simply have to go to our strong tower. And every single time we do, we are safe. Do you know I tell that to my children? I've actually given this instruction to my children. I've told my children that if a bad guy ever comes into the house, the safest place to be is right behind Daddy. Don't hide in a closet. Come right behind Daddy. Daddy will protect you no matter what. And I believe that about my Heavenly Father. I believe that about my Lord Jesus Christ. That when there's storms, when there's trials, when there's difficulty, when there's attacks, the only thing I need to do is run behind my Lord and say, Lord, fight for me. Protect me. And he will. It's a promise. So John ends this book, which is kind of a strange way to end it, isn't it? Paul doesn't end his letters that way. May grace and peace be with you. John just hits us right between the eyes once again. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Mic drop. It's like, really, John? I'm going to flush that out a little bit more. Greetings, salutations, you know, anything like that. Nope, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why, John? Why end it that way? Because that's what you need to hear. I've been doing all this work, this whole book, to remind you of how important Jesus is, how important it is to be with the Heavenly Father, how important it is to have your sins forgiven, to know that you have eternal life. The last thing I could say, if I could say anything to you, is little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because idols will let you down. And it doesn't matter what the idol is. If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, it will let you down. If we put our stock, our hope, our dependency in ourselves, or our family, or our position, our job, our money, our background, our friends, our health, all of them will let us down. They cannot save our souls. They cannot protect us from the evil one. Every single time you give yourself to an idol, the idol isn't there when you need it the most. Every single time you give to the Lord, give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you need him the, the most, he shows up. I'm here. I've always been here, and I will take care of you, child. I love you, child. So John says, do not be confused and Jesus spoke this way as well. It wasn't just John. Jesus drew the line and said, listen, in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other. No one comes to the Father except through me. Little children, watch out for idols. Little children, do not give yourselves to idols. Only Jesus. He's the only Savior of the world. In Acts, the prophets said it, or excuse me, the apostles said it this way salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other. Only Jesus. Forever. We're either with Jesus and we have it all, or without Jesus and we have nothing. But there is a Savior, and He came to this earth so that we would have the word of God. We would have the hope of God. We would have the salvation that he offers. We would have the protection that he gives. That's exactly why he came. That's exactly why we're doing the fall festival. Did you know that? 
So we can take the light of Jesus Christ to the darkness and go, you don't have to be here anymore. There is light. There is hope. There is salvation. And you can have it simply by looking to Jesus. What's the point of our lesson today? Well, it's all on one topic. Thankfully, hail to the victor. Jesus is the victor over sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he can conquer the sin in your life? I had to learn that. I had to learn that for the first time. I should have known that for years before that, but I had to learn that for the first time practically. I don't have to live this way anymore. And it was proven when I stood up to the devil and walked out of my tomb and started to live brand new. Who belongs the glory? The victor. He's also the victor over the devil himself. The devil himself cannot touch you, Christian. You belong to Jesus. He is your victor. He's also the victor over death. That when death threatens us, when death comes to us, we don't have to be scared in the valley of the shadow of death because the Lord is with us. And therefore, we who follow him can and must be victors as well. Victors. Victors. Therefore, before we close, let us victor over sin. Let us victor over the devil. Let us victor over death by siding with and lining behind, lining up behind the true victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be losers. We don't have to be victims. We don't have to be ragdolls thrown around by the devil any longer, do we? We have the victor. We're on his team and let the victor fight the battles for us by siding with him, by lining up behind him, all for his glory and for our benefit. That has been the theme of 1 John. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Why don't we pray as we close? Father in heaven, it's hard to know what to say, Father, after such a long journey through the book of 1 John, but all I can say is thank you. Thank you for this journey. Thank you for these truths, Father, that have reminded us of what's already true, what's been true for forever from the beginning of time that you are holy, that you are loving, and that Jesus is everything. And that you were willing to send your son to the world when we needed him the most because that's how much you love us. I pray for the people in this room. I don't know where they, where they stand with you. I know where I was in my mid-20s. I needed to know the victor. I needed to experience the victory. I needed to see Jesus up close in his strength. I pray for the souls in this room who might need to know that today that they don't have to be victims or losers anymore. They don't have to be in sin. They don't have to listen to the devil. They don't have to be plagued by death any longer as long as they set eyes on the victor and they follow him. Father, maybe today would be the day of someone's salvation, that they'd understand the victory in Jesus, our Savior forever, and they would follow him with their lives. Father, thank you for this lesson today. We give you all glory and praise for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.